Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very excited to uh, share the conversation I had with Peter Bellwood. Peter is Emeritus Professor in Archaeology at the Australian National University. He has his PhD from King's College in Cambridge. His major research areas have been focused on population migrations during prehistory eras and the spread of Austronesian languages. He's the author of numerous books within archaeology, including his most recent book, The Five Million Year Odyssey, The Human Journey from Ape to Agriculture. And that's what we talk about in the conversation. We start by talking about uh, kind of an overview of the, the five million year history of humans, the genera and species of humans and different types of humans that live together at the same time, uh, genes from early human species, and this kind of four acts of human history that he details. We talk about hominins arising out of the Miocene era, uh, period of the earth. We talk about distinct features of Astropithecus, humans in the Pleistocene, Homo erectus walking out of Africa, Neanderthals, and, and other human species. We also talk about domestication and cultivation of plants and animals in the Holocene, rice and corn in the Fertile Crescent and in China, Maïs in the Western Hemisphere, Anatolian Hypothesis for Languages, and many other topics. I absolutely love this conversation. I loved his book. It's a kind of a one-stop shop for understanding our human history and our kind of connections to other periods and uh, other humans at the same time at, at one point. Uh, but more importantly, I really like the second half of the book, which shows uh, out of the Pleistocene into the Holocene. Uh, the importance of agriculture, the importance of domestication, uh, and even some of his work that he's done on languages and how we've spread over the over the earth. It's it's just such a a wonderful wonderful book. It's uh, obviously well researched. It's very current. It's very uh, balanced, honest, uh, and he wades through different topics uh, seamlessly. So it's a fabulous book. He was an absolute delight to talk with, and uh, I really really enjoyed this conversation. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversation at convergingdialogues.substack.com. I'm also on YouTube, so get over to both those places and subscribe, like, follow, write a review, share with your friends, tell everyone, and uh, you can also feel free to contribute as well. It helps the podcast grow, so big thanks for that. And uh, now I bring you Peter Bellwood. I am here with Peter Bellwood. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm greatly looking forward to our conversation. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, you have written a marvelous book. Uh, it's called The Five Million Year Odyssey, The Human Journey from Ape to Agriculture. It's uh, quite magnificent, and uh, we're going to talk all about it. So before we do, why don't you tell listeners uh, just who you are professionally, academically, and uh, what you're currently up to? Well, I, I'm a, I, I was formerly a professor of archaeology at the Australian National University. I've retired now. Um, as I was just saying, I, I've just entered my 80s, so I'm no longer involved in, in, in uh, immediate teaching or administration. So nowadays, I like to write books about the human past and where we all come from. Um, I am an archaeologist, as I said. I trained in archaeology in Cambridge University about 60 years ago. And I'm now trying to keep up, of course, with the huge explosion in modern science, genetics, mm. linguistics, 
chronological sciences, you name it, paleoclimatology, mm-hmm. to um, to give some ideas uh, accessible to the general readership about where humans come from and what they've been up to in the last five million years or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was one of the reasons I'm excited to talk with you because from from especially from your uh, you know, kind of primary field of study in archaeology. There's so many things still to contribute, and um, so I, the first question I want to ask is: is what what is this kind of a general you know kind of thesis here? Is what is what is the five million year odyssey of humans? Yes, uh, and why that's important to really understand the kind of width and breadth of of our story. Well, humans are rather remarkable, uh, according to uh, geneticists and paleoanthropologists, people who study fossils and bones, uh, the, the hominins, that is, human-like bipedal creatures, including Homo sapiens, but of course all the extinct hominins in the past, hominins and chimpanzees and another little chimpanzee-like creature called the bonobo in, uh, in, in Central Africa, shared a common ancestor somewhere between, I think, six and nine million years ago, according to, this is according to geneticists. Mm-hmm. using molecular clock and other kinds of dating. Somehow, our bipedal ancestors, um, who originally must have lived in trees, came down into open sort of savannah-like territory and spread and spread and kept on spreading throughout the whole world. And, of course, we became upright, bipedal, tool-using, big brains and all the rest of it. Uh, the, the chimpanzees and bonobos, remarkably, of course, they evolved their own way. They're not our ancestors, obviously. They're, they're our cousins. Uh, they evolved a knuckle-walking habit uh, that we see in many uh, David Attenborough and, and other movies and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, they remained in equatorial Africa, close to the rainforest. They never spread at all, as far as anyone knows. They 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 pretty much always been where they are now. Uh, of course, apes were much more widespread uh, millions of years ago, but certainly chimpanzees and bonobos have not spread in the way that uh, humans have. So we've spread, we've migrated. So uh, that is the remarkable story about humans. By 16,000 years ago, humans had reached the southern tip of the Americas. They were somewhere down around Tierra del Fuego having located there all the way from Africa, of course, as the original homeland, and, and of course, Tasmania, southern Australia. Mm. Humans went everywhere except for the Antarctica and, and sure. places that are not inhabitable. Um, mm-hmm. right. But chimpanzees and bonobos went their own way in a quite different direction. And, of course, we mm. now have at least five or six million years of evolution and development separate from the great apes. Mm. And uh, behind us are many species that we presume to be extinct, uh, Australopithecines, Neanderthals, although what is happening mm-hmm. nowadays, of course, is that uh, geneticists are showing that sometimes some of these species were quite capable of breeding with our own uh, mm-hmm. Homo sapiens ancestors, and that does change the whole picture. Now, how separate mm-hmm. were these species that paleoanthropologists recognize in the past? Mm. Anyway. So that's yeah no that's that's, that's 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 great we have this we have this this incredible journey from some so long ago and, and you know when we think about in the big picture of how many species or of various animals are on the planet both extinct and currently living and then you see our uh, you know Homo sapiens so yeah. it's it's very interesting our history 
So let's let's talk about kind of uh, taxonomy here, right? Because yeah. this stuff's always really fascinating to me. So let's break it down a little bit. So first, what is the difference between genera and species? And then how many human species were there and how many at one time? So here you can talk about Denisovans, Homo erectus, yeah. sapiens, Neanderthals, yeah. the whole bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, of course, genera are families of species, related species that are presumed to have shared a common origin. Uh, um, uh, whereas species, well, I suppose that most people would have the view that a species is something that uh, breeds, you know, with its own members and not outside mm-hmm. its own boundaries. But of course, we do have horses and donkeys who can reproduce mules, and dogs and jackals can reproduce lions and tigers. Uh, sometimes the offspring are fertile. Um, they're not in the case of mules. So there aren't any fossil mules, as far as I know. But uh, other um, chimpanzees and bonobos, which live across uh, north and south of the Congo River, uh, mm. they became separate maybe a couple of million years ago. They can still interbreed, apparently. But they do it in zoos, of course. They don't do it in the wild because they don't live in the same place and they don't have the same uh, ways of life in many cases. So they don't come into contact. But in the case mm. of horses and donkeys, of course, when, once humans domesticated them and moved them around, in the Middle East and Egypt, um, they started to breed, and so, so, so mules appeared. Now, it is now clear from um, ancient DNA that hominins, at least within the last sort of 100 or 200,000 years, were capable of interbreeding. The, the Neanderthals, the Denisovans that you mentioned in Central mm-hmm. Asia, and early Homo sapiens, still a bit... Olo Homo sapiens is rather uncertain. It existed genetically, but fossils that we can say are directly ancestral to us are very hard to find until about 50,000 years ago. There are some in Africa and Europe that date as far back as 300,000 years ago, but they've always got um, cranial features that sort of make them overlap with more archaic kinds of hominins. So that is a very difficult area. And uh, ancient DNA at the moment, I think the oldest uh, examples come from a site in Spain, um, in a location called Apifuerca, where some remarkable hominins were uh, somehow went, fell down a shaft and died in this cave about 400,000 years ago, believed to be ancestral Neanderthals. But that is the oldest ancient DNA recovered. Before that, for the past five, almost five million years, of course, ancient DNA has not yet been recovered. But, hmm. um, basically, these species, like Neanderthals and Denisovans, are defined, well, mostly from fossils. Denisovans are defined from DNA rather than fossils, ancient DNA. Um, and it is, uh, it is a great mystery. You know, were they really... Uh, integrated and interbreeding around the edges, or were they totally separate from each other? Nobody really knows that. Um, it used to be thought that humans or hominins spread through the world and remained together through what is called gene flow. You know, sort of, right. you, you, the na- neighbors all mix and everything spreads, so that only mm-hmm. one species existed at one time. Mm-hmm. And then a little later, of course, the idea came that everyone came out of Africa, that is, mm-hmm. Homo sapiens, and replaced all the more ancient species. Now we're in a kind of middle ground where certainly people came out of Africa and certainly right. people spread, 
but also they probably never completely separated from each other. And mm. that does make it quite complicated. Um, so how many, how many at one time? So, so Homo sapiens have been around for a while. Yeah. Um, how, there was one point, right? It's as best we know now, the one point that they were, there was, Different groups of what we'll call humans, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, Homo sapiens yeah, of us, yeah. that were different species of of humans, if you will, were living on the planet at the same time. So it wasn't just us, Homo sapiens, but also Neanderthals and yes, maybe Denisovans yes. and maybe others. Yes. How many do we think were living yes. together at the same time? Well, I think at one point in my book, during what is called the Middle Pleistocene era, I, I counted eleven. I think you know the um the, the, obviously I don't have time to go into all of these but yeah maybe two or three hundred thousand years ago Neanderthals Denisovans late um, survivors of Homo erectus in Indonesia uh, oh. early Homo sapiens early Homo sapiens is very much of course just a genetic concept geneticists tell us that Homo sapiens Neanderthals and Denisovans all shared a common ancestor maybe 600,000 years ago, probably located in Africa. But no one's mm. actually found that ancestor as a fossil skull. Uh, it's, it's all um, assumptions from DNA molecular clocks and, and so forth. So mm. there is this, some sort of sapiens lineage that must go back at least as a separate mm. entity, I suppose, for 600,000 years, somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa. But there is... Mm. A, a great deal of debate as to where it might have been, and it might have been quite widespread. Yeah, it's it's, it's very interesting because when we when we look at whatever there's eight billion uh, you know humans on the planet, it's so interesting because you know we'll look out into nature and we'll say, well, there's this amount of species of you know yeah. beetles yeah. or yeah. you know yeah. you know uh, cat wild yeah. cats or yeah. you know whatever, but there's only one human species as far as we mm -hmm. know is still living. It's such an interesting uh, way to think about other types or other species of humans living together at the same time. There's only us now, but it, yeah. and we're used to that. But it'd be so interesting to think about other similar or human-like, uh, you know, animals like us, you know, kind of, you know, walking around and inhabiting the earth still, which would be really fascinating. Well, of course, there is only us now. But don't forget that many of us who live in, 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 uh, in, in Europe and Asia um, carry a small amount of Neanderthal DNA. Sure. I mean, not, not much. There, there wasn't that much intermarriage. Uh, intervening, right. I suppose, or mixing, whatever you want to call it, admixture, mm -hmm. I think geneticists call it. Same with yeah. Denisovans, as a little bit of their DNA does survive in people in the Western Pacific, New Guinea, um, indigenous Australians and so forth, only small again. Uh, yeah. And yeah. some of it, some Neanderthal DNA um, was carried back to Africa by later. I mean, Africans uh, originally did not have Neanderthal DNA because Neanderthals developed, of course, in Asia and, and probably in the Middle East, in the Levant. Mm -hmm. um, so we do carry some traces of, of these earlier species. Yeah, they're still within us. And maybe we probably, I'm sure, well, we must somewhere carry, of course, genes that are inherited from Australopithecines four million years ago. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I'm not yeah. qualified to say what they are, but geneticists, no doubt, <laughs> are considering yeah. these things. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, very, it's very interesting to think about. So you divide the, the book, as you say, there's just kind of these four acts, right? Which is really interesting. So act one is, is hominins before Homo, which is uh, six to two and a half million years yeah. ago. And yes. then we get to act two, and that's genus Homo to Homo sapiens, yeah. two and a half million to 300,000 years ago. 
Act three is Homo sapiens to then food production, mm-hmm. 300,000 to 12,000 years ago. Yeah. And finally, Act four, age of food production, yeah. uh, 12,000 years ago to the present. Yeah. So maybe just kind of give us the broad arc of yeah. these four acts. And of course, many people nowadays would say that there is actually an act five, which is being ah. the Anthropocene, but I won't go into yeah, that. Right. But- <laughs> right, it's a little controversy, I understand. <laughs> well, um, yeah, well, of course, I tend to look at the past in terms of um, successions of events that had major impact on what followed. You know, I think mm. I think we can. A lot of anthropologists have made this point. When we look at the past, when we look at the, re, the, the the period we're in now, you know, you sometimes see periods of very rapid change, and then periods when things quieten down for a long time, and then you get rapid changes again. So I tend to look at these rapid changes. The beginnings of agriculture in different parts of the world, of course, produced very massive rapid changes because the very sharp increases in population. But that is in, in very recent time. Um, the first act, well, that is the one that basically we associate with the Australopithecines and their, uh, and their uh, other species like the Ardipithecus um, in, in, in Ethiopia. Uh, between what's sort of five and two million years ago, um, small brains, but 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 certainly bipedal. The Lucy, you know, the uh, the hominin found in mm-hmm. East Africa many years ago, was what just over a meter tall, I think, and um, had uh, you know bipedal posture like we do. A very small brain, probably only a third of the size of our brain, mm. um, and and by about two million or two and a half million years ago, brain sizes were increasing. They seem to have increased, well, from what we know of the chronology, fairly sharply. I mean, from, say, you know, 400 to 700 cubic centimetres or something like that in half a million years, which, when you're dealing in five or six million years, is quite rapid. And paleoanthropologists agree amongst themselves, of course, according to their statistical methods of analysing crania and so forth, that the changes that occurred about two to two and a half million years ago are sufficiently important to recognize a new genus, which is called Homo. And that is, the Homo genus, of course, contains all the later species, Neanderthals, Homo erectus, Venisovans, and Homo sapiens. That is the beginning of the era of Homo. And about two million years ago, um, a species that's usually termed Homo erectus by paleoanthropologists, uh, mm-hmm. left Africa, presumably through the Levant or Arabia, mm-hmm. probably doing so during a period of interglacial, uh, warm and wet climate with a very widespread African monsoon, and then migrated into Asia. Um, the third one, of course, well, that is, I start that, uh, 300,000 years ago when paleoanthropologists first claim that some fossils found in Africa and, uh, and, and especially in, in the Middle East and in, and in Greece can be claimed as ancestral Homo sapiens. There's a lot of argument about this because it is not possible to be certain that these were ancestors of modern humans. The main expansion of modern humans out of Africa appears to have taken place about 50,000 years ago. In terms of archaeology, maybe 55,000 years ago. Um, In terms of the settlement of Australia, for instance, in terms of the archaeological record in Europe, in terms of 
molecular yeah. clocks with D with modern DNA, let's say yeah. fifty five thousand years ago. Um, so the, the but there are fossils like Homo sapiens that are older than that date, um, but it's uncertain because no, no DNA has been recovered from them, so it's uncertain where they fit within the story. But anyway, the, that Act Three is the one that I think. Or uh, I relate to Homo sapiens, its origins, as far as they can be traced in Africa, and then it spread. And then, of course, Act 4, um, as the Earth warmed after the last glaciation, about 12,000 mm -hmm. years ago, yeah. human populations, hunter-gatherer populations then began to grow in numbers. And somehow, somebody, well, or, or many people, um, and quite how this was done has never been 100% clear. They worked out that if you manage plants and animals in certain ways and uh, plant them and select what you replant the next season, you can eventually domesticate them. You can change mm. them genetically so that they carry characteristics that are very helpful for reducing mm. them and increasing the amount of food you're creating. We call that agriculture. And it is important mm. to me. Agriculture is a very important aspect of human mm. life. Um, not okay. everyone developed it at European contact in, let's say, 1492, which is a major date when Christopher Columbus um, went to the Caribbean. There were still many hunter-gatherers all over North America, uh, probably half the mm. area of North America, including most of Canada and, and the West, mm. California. People were still hunting and gathering. They were all over Australia. Not everybody became a farmer, um, mm. even if they have done so nowadays. But uh, before 1492, the hunter-gatherers mm. were still occupying very large areas of the world. Mm. So, right. so wow. that, is, that is why I really picked those four acts, yeah. um, each one marked by a, a kind of cluster of events that I see as having major impact on what came mm. later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I, the, the, the obvious question that comes after this is, well, how did hominins arise? So just, just for, for listeners, you know, you have yeah. the, the earth, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, 4 billion years old mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, you know, there's all these different uh, epochs, if you will. We have the Precambrian, obviously we have the Cambrian explosion, various extinction periods. You know, you get all the way to Jurassic and 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 uh, Jurassic period, another extinction. Yeah, yeah. So really, you start us and dump us in the Miocene, which really on the on the large scale of life on Earth, it's really recent, yeah. right? If you're talking about four billion years, yes. even the Cambrian five hundred million yeah. years, the Jurassic sixty six million years, five million is still relatively not that long ago. Yeah. Um, but where do we see, obviously we talk about this common ancestor, things like that, mm. but in, in the Miocene and then into the, the, to the, um, to the, the, the Pliocene, where do we start to see that there's a beginning of hominins that is yeah. different, I yeah. guess? Okay. Well, of course, um, the, yeah, yes, the, um, um, uh, the, the, the great apes, as we call them, and their ancestors, uh, apes were very widespread in the world in the Miocene. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on apes, but they were all over Europe and Asia and Africa, uh, mm -hmm. not in America or Australia, of course, but certainly the old world, as we call it. Um, they mm -hmm. had a huge radiation, and the, and the oldest um, bipedal creatures have actually recently been claimed from a site in Germany. I think they're about 12 million years old. Um, mm -hmm. There is some debate as to whether they could have been uh, hominin ancestors, uh, it's not resolved. Um, and most people, I think, probably prefer an African origin. 
Mm-hmm. But so the great apes did have a, a kind of an, an era of fluorescence in the Miocene. But then, of course, they began to shrink and humans gradually took over the ape world, especially with Australopithecines and, and the genus Homo. Um, how did we separate from... Well, in the case of chimpanzees and bonobos, um, the, the, the general story given is that they, about two million years ago, um, some of them somehow managed to cross the Congo River. Uh, I gather they're not strong swimmers. And the ones that crossed to the south then evolved separate from the others to the north into what we call bonobos today. Um, so separation. Now, did early hominins separate from early chimpanzees and bonobos? Well, um, and, and if, if, well, they must have done in some way. Yeah, there has to be some genetic separation to um, to allow a, a species to form. And um, but quite how it happened, I know some geneticists like the idea that it was a long term thing that they would separate and then maybe come back for a while, then separate again, but gradually get more different. So eventually, they mm. have different behavioural characteristics. They live in different environments, and the same. And by well, let us say, I think it's seven million years ago, there is a, a finding in the central Sahara in Chad, um, bones that have been called Sahelanthropus that are, are thought by many people to be the first bipedal hominins. Um, mm-hmm. They would have lived there, of course, when the central Sahara was somewhat wetter than it is now. The Sahara at various times was much wetter than now and did have vegetation and grazing animals and so forth, even in even even uh, six or 7,000 years ago, uh, mm. just before the start of Egyptian civilization, the Sahara was, went through a wet phase and people mm-hmm. spread through it. So um, <clears throat> that is probably what happened, that, 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 that there was a gradual separation. And then once, mm. I mean, the, the oldest definite hominins that everybody agrees upon, I suppose, are really the Australopithecines. Yeah. Um, they start about 4.5 million years ago in South Africa and East Africa. And from then on, I think everybody agrees that somewhere within the Australopithecine mix was the ancestral population that gave rise to, eventually, to, to hominins. To, to, I mean, mm. to Homo, to the genus Homo. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you, you you mentioned that there's this there's the Artipithecus, and then you have Astropithecus, right? Uh, there's this kind of Australopithecus, yeah, 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 Astro- yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And the difference is is that they're bipedal, they have larger brains, yeah. opposable thumbs, a larynx for speech, maybe, and they're hairless. Is, is this really the features that make them distinct? Well, it does. I mean, they, they, they don't actually uh, the, the Artipithecus and the Australopithecines don't really have much larger brains than chimpanzees. They they but they are mm. bipedal. The bipedalism is the mm-hmm. crucial thing. I think that's yeah. being bipedal that then frees your hands. See, we can we can oppose our now apes can't do this. Ape, apes are great for climbing trees and grasping, but they an mm-hmm. ape couldn't play a violin. I mean put it that mm-hmm. way. Uh, humans can create things with fingers and thumbs. Mm-hmm. We're the, the opposable thumbs and fingers. That's very important. Mm-hmm. Um so um uh, and brain size, well, yes, that that increased more slowly. That that probably began to increase with Homo around about two, two and a half. Yeah. So mm. things develop at different speeds and times and in different places. Although mo- all is of it, it is, is, of course, in, in sub-Saharan Africa somewhere. I think that is where everything happened. Yeah, is, it, is there is there you talk about the Rift Valley for having this yes. environment yeah. where these, these things can be fostered. So you yeah. can chat about that, but I guess is it, 
is there is it possible with Astropithecus that it's maybe that they were a type of intermediary where they would be were they fully bipedal or were they somewhat in trees but then also on the ground or was it completely bipedal on the ground do we have any of that well that is a question that you yeah i mean that's the question for a paleoanthropologist i think i mean Ah. were they well in my book of course there is which i uh courtesy of a paleoanthropologist called milford wolpoth um from the university of michigan uh, who has written important textbooks about biological anthropology, um, I do have a, a little picture of Lucy reconstructed side by side with a mm-hmm. contemporary mm-hmm. Homo sapiens. I'm just looking for it at the moment. Sorry. Um, and uh, you can see from it, it, it's, it is here. Yes, you can see from this. Lucy mm-hmm. is, is this little one here. This, this is a two million year old Homo, uh, uh, Homo mm-hmm. member of the genus Homo mm-hmm. on the other side. Uh, Lucy yeah. was very small. Yeah. She was bipedal, standing upright, uh, grasping mm-hmm. hands, a very small brain, about still about uh, ape size, but yeah. definitely hominin. Mm-hmm. The other mm-hmm. question is: Did these little Australopithecines did they make stone tools? That's always been a, a mystery. It's probably possible that they did. Um, because their bones are found in sites in southern Africa where stone tools do occur. But usually it's always uncertain whether it's Australopithecines or contemporary populations of of Homo who were actually making the stone tools. That's always been slightly uncertain. I suspect the the later Australopithecines did make stone tools, um, Mm. the ones that overlapped in time with with the genus Homo. Um, and stone tools, of course, are a crucial part of our evolution. They they were the original, uh, well, stone tools and organic materials like spears and things mm-hmm. to carry babies because we, the, home, the genus Homo was hairless and babies couldn't mm-hmm. cling onto mother's hair. Tools, uh, tools in many ways did make us human. Yes, they allowed us mm-hmm. to create many, many things beyond our bodies that uh, mm-hmm. were of great importance. Yeah, I think it's a, an essential thing to, I guess, to remember is that, you know, obviously, I mean, you know, sometimes we might think that, well, there's one day there's, there's a, there's a, there's not a human and then there is a human. And obviously there's a lot of, uh, again, evolution, right? These things yeah. are happening, but yeah. it seems what makes it distinct from what it, it was or what it was evolving from was this notion of bi- being bipedal, that this was a yeah. really distinct I think feature. That is the crucial thing. Bipedal is, is the start. Yes. Yeah. Somehow, little creatures in trees um, uh, became bipedal. Even when they were climbing in the trees, they could still stand on branches rather than swinging mm-hmm. on them, if you like. Yeah, it means standing mm-hmm. and walking. This is the one idea, is that standing and walking around on branches uh, developed with early hominins. And eventually, of course, they come down to the ground more and more. And eventually, I suppose, they'd leave, leave trees altogether and go and live in much more open savanna landscapes, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. also are very widespread in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, yeah. So then you, you take us to the important Pleistocene, and then obviously the current or sort of current Holocene uh, yeah, eras of, yeah. of uh, geological Earth. And so you, you, many people have done this. So you break it down into early, middle, late Pleistocene, yeah. and there's key elements in each stage. So you can chat about those. Yeah, you can mention yeah. the well, uh, these, of course, what is are it, uh, Earth science divisions based on um, yeah. like, no, um, um, changes in the orientation of the Earth's atmospheric field. Uh, 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 um, the, the Earth's um, yeah, field, um, 
yeah. relative positions of north and south and so forth. Um, also fossil records and uh, fossils from deep sea cores, pollen. And all. Um, the, the, the Pleistocene, I think the main thing about the Pleistocene is that although it has early, middle and late phases that are very handy for classifying things in terms of chronology, it's mm-hmm. the main events in the Pleistocene were these huge cycles caused by the movements of the Earth going round the sun. It, you know, it's orbit and the tilt of its axis. A lot of this, I think, to do is apparently connected with gravitational pull of other planets in the solar system. I'm not an astronomer. but uh, These are these are the uh, Milankovitch? Like- as they become called. Yeah. And they, of course, mm-hmm. they're related to the formation of ice ages. And the uh, in the early Pleistocene, say two million years ago, the swings were not very emphasised. Apparently, they were in, in the cycles were mostly about forty or fifty thousand years long. But during the last million years, um, the Earth has been going through these rather more marked swings from glacial or ice age, if you like, to periods like now into glacials on cycles of about 100 or 120,000 years. And it is during this time that the larger-brained hominins like Neanderthals um, and the later Homo erectus and, of course, the ancestors of Homo sapiens, it's during this time that they evolved. And it was during the um, glacial periods when they would have had access to land bridges because sea levels dropped. And of course, North America and Asia were joined together, as were um, as were Australia and New Guinea during the glacial low sea level periods. But also um, in the interglacial periods, um, the opposite of the glacials, periods like now, um, many of the great deserts like the Sahara and Arabia were much wetter. Now, the Sahara mm-hmm. is a very dry place now, but as I said before. Five or six thousand years ago, it was much wetter, and people were mm-hmm. living in caves and um, sort of um, small hilly areas right through the centre of it. And so, these interglacials, of course, allowed people to leave Africa and spread into Asia mm. about two million years. So, it is these swings from glacial to interglacial that are the most important aspect of the Pleistocene. In terms of understanding human evolution. Now, now one of the the the, the uh, hominids is is this most fascinating for me is the Homo erectus, which we yeah. I think still think was the first to walk up out of Africa yeah. and go throughout the earth. But in your book, you made an interesting point that maybe I've either missed before or maybe it's the first time hearing it was that it wasn't one time. It was a back and forth kind of thing, right? That they would, that, that mm. multiple times coming mm. and going or whatever. Mm. Talk about Homo erectus getting out of Africa. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you see, if, if, if there was a, uh, you know, if there were opportunities for leaving Africa, say every hundred thousand years during warm, wet interglacial periods, um, we wouldn't really know about it because there wouldn't be a hundred thousand years is not enough for deep level mm. speciation. Um, each group would be very similar to the preceding ones, and they probably interbreed freely, so that they, we, we wouldn't see right. it in the fossil record. And since there's no DNA from uh, from the middle Pleistocene, well, at least not from the time period we're talking about moving out of Africa, mm. um, we don't really know this yet. Mm. So, mm. Um, <clears throat> Homo erectus is 
Yeah, it is said by many to have been, because that's the one that got to Java and China, maybe one and a half, two million years ago. However, Mm. from a site in um, Georgia, uh, which I have visited, a site called Demanacy, a number of fossils were found some years ago. They're about 1.7 million years old. And there has been quite a lot of debate as to whether these are Homo erectus or some other species. I'm not an authority on this. I can't, but you know, in other words, there's a possibility that one or two species left Africa and there might've been continuous, almost, well, not quite continuous movements. Um, Movements would have been, I suppose, uh, pinned down into into interglacial periods. Although we, I mean, uh, we don't know, of course, if they went by land through the Sinai Peninsula or somehow got across the mouth of the Red Sea across the Babel Mandab, um, we'll probably never know that. Uh, mm. It is, um, that, 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 that is impossible to know. But certainly people did, did, um, did get through, and maybe on many occasions, whether it was a single species, um, Demanacy and Homo erectus could be different species, according to some people, uh, writing the number of papers being written now um, are giving this opinion. Um, mm. Yes, so it is quite complex. And don't Mm. forget also that in the case of Indonesia, some of these early hominins somehow managed to reach um, the island of Flores and also the island of Luzon in the Philippines sometime, Mm -hmm. probably in the early or middle Pleistocene, and they became completely isolated and very small Mm. in body size, Um, and they are now thought to be extinct, um, probably surviving until the arrival of Homo sapiens about 50,000 years ago. I wanted to ask about Homo florensius. Uh, is, is, now, is it enough to know? I mean, we just don't know, but can we say that they're distinctly different? Or <clears throat> you know, is there a debate on that? And then also, you know, there's all these, you know, uh, uh, difficult, you know, eyewitness accounts that maybe they're still somewhere out in real, you know, you know, remote areas in Indonesia or something mm-hmm. like that, and that they they died off, you know, a couple hundred years ago, maybe or even sooner. Yeah. You know, that's you know, kind of almost feels like a tall tale of sorts. Mm-hmm. But uh, what do what do you what do you think about these? Well, things? I don't think they survived. To is I know I know there are talks about small people in Flores, and there are some short people alive in Flores today. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't mm-hmm. think anyone has ever demonstrated that they descend from Homo. Louisiensis, as it's called, or commonly known as the Hobbit. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, now that the cave that um, the woman uh, was found in, the the, the, the skeleton of mm-hmm. Homo Louisiensis, uh, was excavated early in in the two thousands and the late nineteen nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, the the skeleton at the time was thought to be about twelve thousand years old from radiocarbon dating, but then the excavators discovered that they misinterpreted the stratigraphy in the cave and many of the mm. deposits had moved and been replaced. Mm. And now they think that uh, that species lived between, um, well, was extinct by, let's say, 50 or 60,000 years ago, probably disappeared mm. when modern humans arrived. And mm. there are traces of it in other sites in Flores back to, well, current dating about 300,000 years ago. But... Um, Knowledge is always a problem here, uh, yeah. but um, uh, it might have arrived you know, as, as much as a million years ago. Um, mm. 
there are people who think that it is a separate movement from uh, Africa of a very small hominin. Mm. Uh, how one explains that, I, I really don't know, uh, but separate mm. from Homo erectus and probably even separate from the Domanosee remains, uh, crani- the Domanosee hominins, in which case we could have three or more species coming out of Africa. But this yeah. is yeah, this is a period of great mystery. I have to say, yeah. disagree. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know how if we will ever know completely, because of course the fossil record is very fragmentary, and it's very lucky mm-hmm. to find anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, since mm-hmm. since yeah. Homo floresiensis was found in uh, two thousand, and I think it was published in two thousand and three, twenty years ago, people have been looking all over the place in caves. And they haven't found any more, but they have, of course, found a similar one in Luzon Island in the northern Philippines, mm. but not in Indonesia so far. Mm. Well, not as far as I know. If they have, uh, they haven't yet published it or reported it. Mm. Yeah, yeah so it's very, it's very interesting how we, you know, there's obviously more to to discover, and then it reshifts things, and yeah. you keep you'll you'll see a paper come out, and you will say, well, actually, maybe we we push this date back more. Yeah. No, we push yeah. it up further. It's always yeah. always in flux. Chronology <laughs> is a difficult issue because most dating, of course, is uh, has error ranges, and anything mm. soil fossils can be moved and redeposited, and this is what happened mm. with Homo floresiensis. Um, mm. And there's a problem with the, the the fossils in Java of Homo erectus. They're found in uh, in sediments, uh, and the sediments can be roughly dated. But that doesn't mean to say that the fossils you know are exactly the same date. They might have a, a quite different kind of history. Mm. And this mm. is yeah. mm, big, can cause big problems. Mm-hmm. So so then we finally we get to to us to Homo sapiens. Yeah. Uh, you talk about this. It's been a little time here, I guess, because it's you know about about us as much as we know. It's about this multi regional model and this replacement model, such as the African yeah. Eve uh, model, the origins of Homo sapiens. Yeah. What what do we know as much as we do? I mean, obviously, you mentioned gene flow earlier. You don't have yeah. to talk about that. But what do we know about our origins of Homo sapiens for us as humans? Well, I think the origins of Homo sapiens have to be in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, and there are a number of fossils from there that might fit the bill. But as I said before, many of them also have you know, features of the shapes of the skull that overlap with other kinds mm. of archaic hominins. In other words, some of the ones found in Israel, for instance, that uh, are classified as Homo sapiens, the back of the skull is still very much the same or similar in shape to the skulls of Neanderthals, for instance. So it's all gradual. Mm. I mean, it's yes, there's no sharp change. What we can say, I think, is that in terms of modern humans like us, you know, we've got this globular cranium that's wider above the ears. With, eight, with mm-hmm. ancient hominins, the, um, the, 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 the cranium was usually quite low, and the widest mm-hmm. point was more or less at the ears, but our cranium is wider, a little bit higher up. You know, we have a globular mm-hmm. cranium. Yeah. Um, now, human remains, uh, skeletons, crania, with our modern shape are, I guess, in general, less than 55,000 years old. Um, anything older than that, and there are Homo sapiens fossils older than that in Israel, as I said, in Greece and, of course, Africa and, and Europe, um, they tend to retain more of these archaic characteristics. So which ones are ancestral to us? Um, in Africa, I suppose there has been continuity amongst the population still living in southern Africa. 
um, the, the, um, uh, the people, um, uh, Bushmen and the Koi Koi herders and uh, hunter-gatherers in Tanzania and, uh, and also in the Congo rainforest, many of them have DNA records that suggest great antiquity within Africa. They, they descend from the initial Homo sapiens populations in Southern Africa. But then, um, I suppose 55,000 years ago or something like that, people then spread out of Africa and through Europe and Asia. The oldest claims now for modern Homo sapiens like us in Europe are, I think, 54,000 years ago from a cave site in the Rhone Valley in France where archaeologists have found um, stone tools and a tooth that they believe are associated with Homo sapiens in layers stratified amongst um, the stone tools left by Neanderthals, which suggests that humans had probably just come out of Africa at that time and were in the Middle East um, mixing with Neanderthals to some extent. So the time frame we can say is definitely 50,000 years, maybe 54, maybe what's, what's the, what's, give me that confidence interval. Where, where are we at? What's the, the oldest and what's the youngest, I guess, for homo sapiens um, yes, generally? Yes, yes. Well, there are, of course, a number of people who are claiming older dates now from um, mm. the human remains found in uh, caves, usually single teeth or fragments of crania found in the Southeast Asian and Chinese caves. I'm not always convinced by those because I know that cave deposits can be very difficult to date and they can mm, be disturbed sure. and, and redeposited. Um, there are claims for Australia um, that are very popular now in the Australian media that um, uh, somebody got here 65,000 years ago. Uh, those mm -hmm. dates are on uh, sand grains rather than stone tools or human remains. Um, they're from a cave in the Northern Territory. And I think that um, for various reasons, the well, this is this becomes quite complicated. But uh, the kinds of stone tools that they're found with, which are axes with polished edges, are somewhat mm. younger than this date. In other words, I'm not convinced by the sixty-five. Um, geneticists tell us um, at least possibly fifty-five thousand. And I'm, I think, for the time being, I would go along with that. And taking mm. into um, taking into consideration the archaeological record, of course, in, in Southeast Asia and Europe and Asia in general, there are no clear-cut agreed signs of a Homo sapiens presence until about 50 to 55,000 years ago. Anywhere else except um, in Australia, and as I mentioned, a few cases of um, finds from caves in Southeast Asia. Mm, yeah. This is, is very interesting. So 50,000 always sounds about right. Now, yeah, of course, that is wanna, also the, the limit of radiocarbon dating, which may be. A sure, sure, yeah, sure. There could be older dates, but, but, but people, are not, then people are not finding them in large numbers. And this is right. concerns me somewhat. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you about this link between, we, we chatted about it earlier, just kind of the general view. So you can, you know, uh, dive deeper a little bit on here if you want. We don't have to spend a whole lot of time on it, but you know, so obviously if Homo sapiens are becoming this, you know, distinct enough to be, you know, own species, you know, humans are on, on the planet, we have Neanderthals and then we obviously have Denise events. Now, there was a book that came out uh, a couple of years ago now 
Kindred. Oh, why am I forgetting yeah, her yes. name? It's by a woman. Yes, about Neanderthals. Yeah, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, about Neanderthals. Right. Yeah, yes, yes. Yes, 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 yes. It's a great book, great yeah. book. And she really looks at, you know, it's kind of like, you know, people have this idea of Neanderthals as the dumb caveman, but really that's not, that's not true at all. And, and she, it was a great book. She, she did fabulous research. Um, and, and so maybe tell us about this uh, as much as you, you know, or, or want to speak on about this link between this association between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. I mean, at first it was thought that they like kind of like, you know, uh, you know, just wiped them out, but then it becomes, looks more like it was a lot of interbreeding and then they, yeah. you know, just eventually became into what we now know as, you know, parts of us. So what, what was that link there between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens and even also the link between Homo sapiens and Denisovans? Yeah. Well, of course, the, the, gen, the, the genetic story now is that um, uh, um, um, Homo sapiens, Neanderthals and Denisovans shared a common ancestry in Africa maybe 600,000 years ago. The ancestors of Homo sapiens at that time stayed in Africa and a population ancestral to both Neanderthals and Denisovans migrated through the Levant, through Southwest Asia, into Europe and Asia, maybe 400,000 mm. years ago. And the bones of some of those um, people, uh, early Neanderthals, have been found in this site uh, called Cima de los Huesos, the, the shaft where many bodies were uh, apparently thrown down or fell in about 400,000 years ago. So um, modern humans and Neanderthals, uh, or, or their ancestors at least, parted company about 400,000 years ago. The Neanderthals went to Eurasia and evolved there. Um, the Nisovans went further into Central Asia, it appears, into Siberia, probably Southeast Asia, and developed into yet another species. There are also um, fossil remains from China that may belong to even yet other species that this is becoming quite complicated now. So humans and Neanderthals have been separate for, say, 400,000 years. But then, let's say 55,000 years ago, the humans in the form of modern Homo sapiens then migrated uh, into Europe and Asia and met the Neanderthals. I mean, this is what happened time and time again through human prehistory. Different populations develop in relative isolation from each other. And then one of them moves for some reason. One of them finds a way out of a homeland, either a land bridge or a warm and wet climate through a desert or you know, a river and whatever, and, uh, and they then meet their, their, their deep cousins back in, back in time, and the intermixing starts again. And that is what happened with Neanderthals. I think the general assumption with Neanderthals is that their, their, their population size was quite small. Um, they... Uh, the, the, of course, they made stone tools, quite complex ones. Uh, they, they knew how to use fire. Um, uh, uh, and there are some arguments that the later ones, perhaps the ones that overlapped with Homo sapiens, didn't know how to build uh, stone structures in caves and some, sometimes even you know, make hand, hand stencils or hand, um, hand impressions in red ochre on cave walls. I'm not sure about this. It's very difficult to date this kind of uh, uh, artistic material, but it is quite possible that the later Neanderthals yeah, were, were um, mixing with Homo sapiens and borrowing many of their um, uh, ideas and, um, and, and habits. 
But the modern humans, as I understand the genetics, were larger in number. They had larger family sizes, and they were probably also, um, in the case of Europe, uh, they they developed much eventually, of course, much um, more efficient kinds of stone tools, which we archaeologists call upper paleolithic. These are things like blades and um, flake spear points and things of that nature. Mm. Um, Yeah. And and what about the you know when we when we see these links you you mentioned this this aspect of well you know the Homo sapiens they come out of Africa and then there's this you know spread into into Asia and the Middle East that we know today and so jumping ahead a little bit of sorts I guess how I'm very curious I've actually talked to a few people on the podcast about this how do we understand humans really spreading across the, 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 the globe. Of course, this is later, mm-hmm. although people keep pushing and moving this date yeah. earlier and, and later. Mm-hmm. But we get to, they get to the, to the Americas and they get to Asia, yeah. right? They get to Australia and then, the, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but, but also the Americas too. What, what's this story here uh, of how we understand as best we can, how through time and, and what time period where, you know, Homo sapiens got to the Americas? Yes, I mean, I think, um, of course, once people uh, get access to another region and once the, the story gets out in, in a way, you know, it, it's going to magnify itself. So it is like, I think, with, with even with the settlement of Polynesians, for instance, mm-hmm. it goes in rapid burst. You get periods when all of a sudden um, people discover that there are islands somewhere over the horizon and, and in a very short time large numbers of them move and lots of new islands are settled. It tends to be very uh, quick. And in the case of humans moving out of Africa, um, I suppose they were entering territories where um, food supplies would have been good. They would not have had the benefit that the first hominins would have had of having um, large numbers of naive animals that had never faced bipedal predators before. Uh, modern humans would not have had this advantage because, of course, there were earlier hominins in Europe and Asia before them. Um, but even so, they uh, they appear to have spread pretty quickly um, by at least 40,000, 50,000 years ago um, into cold areas of Central Asia. By 30,000 years ago, they'd spread up to the Arctic Circle um, in, the, in northern Russia. And, of course, as we know, well, this is an argument. This is a, an issue of debate also, but in my view, around 16,000 years ago, they, um, by this time, of course, they developed warm clothing, um, mm-hmm. and, and meth- meth- methods of keeping themselves alive in very cold climates, warm clothing, uh, boats, um, specialized hunting equipment, and so forth. And these things enabled them to, to reach the Americas. Mm. So I think things come in bursts and that, that suddenly opportunities arise and um, Neanderthals probably didn't face any opportunities, but Homo sapiens did as it entered new environments. I think with Neanderthals, as far as we know, there was no purposeful extermination. Um, it was probably uh, partly interbreeding um, but I, one thing that I, I am aware of, uh, and this is from my experience of living in Australia, um, when uh, Europeans came here in the 19th century and, of course, dispossessed the Aboriginal population, 
Um, they brought in diseases, but they also took the land, the sheep farming, the same thing happened, of course, in the Americas. Um, the indigenous population um, shrank in numbers and, uh, and, and birth rates declined dramatically. And I know this also happens as a result of competition amongst birds. I've seen articles on this. And when birds are in strong competition, the, the species that is um, on the downside tends to um, reduce its, its, its birth rate. And I think this might have happened with Neanderthals. Pressure from modern humans might have led them to reduce their birth rate until the point where they just eventually disappeared and became no longer able to support a continuing population. Mm. 45,000 oh, yeah. years ago or something like mm. that. And the same presumably happened with the Venetians further east, although less is known. Yeah, no, many people make a, a deal about the Bering Land Strait and, and even that it was, you know, different, you know, 16, 20,000 years ago. And after the, the, the ice wall in Canada, you know, kind of broke through, then they were able to come down, mm -hmm. although then it's hard to find, you know, with timing of it beforehand. And some people think on the coast, on the Pacific and, you know, all these different mm -hmm. ideas, which is really mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, Homo sapiens start populating the earth. And we finally get to uh, where you talk about much of the book is the Holocene, which yeah, again yeah, is you know, our yeah. current period. If, 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 you know, some people might think it's a new period, but we'll leave that on the it's table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, and we really get, you, you kind of alluded to it earlier, uh, domesticated plants and animals or animal food, I should say in the Holocene, right about 10,000 years BC. Yeah. That really was a huge change yes. for yeah. just humans. And well, so could you talk about that and this difference and or similarity between cultivation and domestication? Yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, of course, we know agriculture was very important from, well, at least two or three sources of data. The archaeological record, of course, people started mm. living in many parts of the world in villages, much denser, larger populations. Um, we know from DNA, ancient DNA, and from the archaeology, that there were massive changes. You know, hunter-gatherer cultures were replaced by farming cultures and different people, um, often mm. with um, different body shapes. I mean, this can be as, as not, not just DNA, but um, uh, especially in Europe and Eastern Asia, there were dramatic changes and, and, and you know, very serious replacements of population from DNA. Now... It, it, to have to be a farmer, in my view, uh, you, you you have to have some sort of domestication idea. Um, hunter gatherers in Australia and North America and California—that is, hunter gatherers before European contact—they all knew how to plant. If if you put a seed in the ground, of course, it's going to grow. That, that, that's an obvious thing. And also, if mm -hmm. you tame an animal and keep it around your campsite. Um, it, it will probably be friendly and you can feed it. And, um, and, and that, that, I think that happened very early on with dogs, for instance, that they were domesticated long before things like sheep and goats and cattle. Dogs are an extremely ancient uh, domesticated animal, probably originally amongst hunter-gatherer populations, because dogs are very useful. They, they can bark, they can help hunting and, and so forth. Um, now, hunter-gatherers have this knowledge and there's nothing unusual or special about it. They can manage their environments. They can use fire. They can burn to encourage regrowth of crops. But they don't um, domesticate. Now, domestication is genetic change. 
it, it, with crops, it's often the grains get bigger, they stay together on the ear for longer, they're easier to harvest, easier to thresh. With animals, it's changes in body shape, in docility, um, and, and things of that nature. Um, uh, humans who are farming know how to encourage these developments by, presumably, um, I wouldn't say selective breeding, but they weren't stupid. They must have known that some animals had uh, more useful characteristics than others, and the same with plants, you know, some kinds of wheat or barley, perhaps, they would see if fields were, if, if the grains didn't shatter and blow away when they were ripe, mm -hmm. they might mm -hmm. deliberately use them for replanting. So mm -hmm. once this gets started, it becomes like a snowball. As these plants yeah. become more domesticated, of course, they become more productive, and so it goes on. And if you mm -hmm. think about it, the world today that we live in now, a very small number of major species domesticated very, very early on, like wheat and barley and rice and maize, and of course the animals, sheep, uh, cattle, pigs, uh, chickens, although chickens are a little different because they're from southern China, Southeast Asia, but um, all of these creatures and, and plants, they still feed the world today. Millions of people um, live on you know, products of maize, wheat and uh, rice especially, and uh, chicken, uh, chicken and beef and, and so forth. Uh, the, the, the areas where these plants were first and animals were first domesticated, like the Fertile Crescent for wheat and cattle, um, China for, for rice, uh, Mesoamerica and South America for, for, for maize, uh, they eventually became the, the, the sites of what we call ancient civilizations. This is not coincident. This is not coincidence. I mean, for me, you know, the Middle East, the Fertile Crescent, including Egypt, China, uh, Mesoamerica, Peru, as we all know, if, if you're interested in ancient civilizations, well, those are the places to go and, and look for them. Now, these very, very important crops and animals, they define these major areas of the world where the ancient civilizations developed. And, and that is not coincidence. It is because those areas were very lucky. They had these crops and animals in their wild repertoire, humans, very early on, knew how to manage them and domesticate them, and um, and they never looked back. I suppose, uh, and, and you know, yeah. I, I wanted to, I wanted to ask about this because many times, if if people would just kind of read um, history or, or ancient civilizations, it's you know, it's always a fertile crescent in middle middle the Middle East. Yeah. It's East Asia. It's Mesoamerica, the Andes, all these places. And I said, well, what, what is it? What's so special about the Euphrates and the Tigris right. River? Well, there's nothing really special about it in, the, in terms of the, the, the environment, yeah. the soil, the atmosphere, the, the, all of the different things and how things were domesticated. Um, is, is that really the basis of it? It's an environmental solution. Of environmental. I mean, all of those areas where uh, early agriculture became really important, they tend to have warm, temperate or, or sort of tropical yeah. seasonal climates because – most of the big grains like wheat and barley, they're annuals. You know, they, they need a seasonal yeah. climate where you have a wet season and a dry season. They're not, they don't grow very well along the equator or, or in, in Siberia. I mean, um, and so that's important. And the, the Middle East, um, I think just Jared Diamond has pointed out, you know, it, it is a, an intersection area of Europe, Asia and Africa. So many species 
went into there and became available. And the large grain cereals and the, the major domestic animals yeah, were native to what we call the Fertile Crescent. They were not native in Europe or, mm. or say, India or, 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 or most of Africa. Um, so that gave the people who lived there a major advantage. They probably weren't aware of it at the time, but the animals and plants that they were domesticating 10, 12,000 years ago were going to continue on to, to feed uh, much of the world today. And the same with rice in the Yangtze Basin of China and, um, and with maize, of course, one of the world's most important crops in Originally Mesoamerica, it was taken very early to South America and then developed further through uh, further domestication. And maize has a very complex history, but it's an extraordinary crop Mm. even now. I think it's probably the most most produced crop in the world. I'm not sure whether maize, rice, maize or rice take... Um, take take the prize there, but one of them, uh, one, one, one of them, one of them is the first and second place for sure. <laughs> it's a staple for most people groups still yeah, to this yeah, day. Yeah. And pigs, um, chickens, and cattle, of course. Sure, oh, oh, sure. chicken, yeah, as yeah. I said, is interesting because that's not from Fertile Crescent or, or well, it could be from the far south of China, but the, I think the most recent mm-hmm. DNA work on chickens suggests that they probably came from somewhere like northern Thailand. And, of course, chickens are rather late. I, I'm not sure when they got to Europe, maybe in Roman times or a bit before, mm-hmm. but they're not. Mm-hmm. Chickens were not part of the original far yeah. cultures of, of places like Europe or, or the yeah. present. Yeah, t- t- talk a little bit. You talk about it in a few chapters, I think, two chapters, I think, maybe in the book of what food production was like in the yellow Yangtze and in Liao regions in China is something that, again, unless you're a you know, historian of China, yeah. a lot of people don't know about this. So yeah. you just chat about that a little bit. Well, and, and, and how is it similar, sorry, to the, to the fertile crescent? Yeah. Again, this yeah. kind of seasonal thing, temperate well, it, weather. It, it's a temperate latitude, similar latitude with a seasonal climate in China. Of course, the climate is monsoonal. That means that the, the, the rain, the rainy season, the growing season is in the summer. In, in, in the Fertile Crescent, the rainy season is in the winter, which does make a difference to how you produce the crops. Of course, wheat and barley are winter crops. Started life as winter crops. Rice and the millets are summer crops. Now, China, the oldest um, successful agriculture was obviously in the Yellow River, where the, the main crops to start with were millets, foxtail and broom corn, not rice. Rice... Uh, was domesticated probably around the same time in the middle and lower Yangtze Valley, much further to the south. But, of course, all of this area of eastern China is vast riverine plain, fertile alluvial soils, good rainfall. Um, China also, of course, had wild pigs. Um, they had domestic dogs. They, the early Chinese did not have things like cattle, sheep, and goats. They're, they're fertile crescent animals. They got them, Chinese got them later, obviously, but in the Bronze Age, but not in, not in Neolithic times. Um, <clears throat> and the, the Yellow River and the Liao River, which is further north, uh, developed these large villages of agricultural populations, dependent initially in that area on millets. Uh, they, mm. they, they very quickly also brought rice from the Yangtze, but the, the original development was based on millets. In the Yangtze, mm. it was rice. And as a result of that, uh, population spread. Um, from the Yellow River, the people that we call the Chinese, who of course are, are complex with many languages nowadays, sure, sure, Tibetans sure, yeah, and sure. Burmese, they're all related, the Kanan, yeah, yeah. 
many peoples in northern uh, northern South Asia, in, in northern India, Bhutan, right round to um, mm-hmm. the western side of the Himalayas. They speak uh, what we call Tibeto-Burman and, and Sino-Tibetan languages that come from the Yellow River. Neolithic migrations starting five or 6,000 years ago. And all of this now is being tracked through very detailed uh, ancient... The Chinese have suddenly discovered that in their museums, they've got thousands of skeletons and, and they have a lot of DNA. And I'm yeah. frequently yeah. asked to you know, review papers on this where the geneticists will look at ancient DNA and come up with this record of movement starting partly in the Yellow River also in the Yangtze, the, but the, most of the Yangtze people went south into southeastern China, whereas the mm. Yellow River ones went up into Tibet and down through uh, the western provinces of China into what are now Burma, western Thailand, and north yeah. India. A vast mm. movement of people. Um, mm. And, of course, that, so the, in this area, the archaeology of the record of villages of domesticating these crops and animals, pigs and so forth, um, the, the ancient DNA from the bones, the linguistic. Now, I haven't said much about languages, but of course, linguists. I was going to ask you. I was yeah, going to ask you about languages. They yeah, come I was going to ask you about well, that because they compare languages as they're recorded. I mean, languages mm. have to be recorded either as they're spoken today or a bit through written records, of course, going back in time. Um, and they have statistical methods of trying to work out where the homeland was and in which directions the ancestral languages spread. And uh, there are many methods of doing that, and the results are very interesting. The, this, what we call the Sino-Tibetan languages um, are, or did originate, in the Yellow River Valley with, with these Neolithic people growing millet. I think that is almost certain. Mm. China's mm. a very uh, clear-cut and coherent area for this kind of um, a sort of a cross-examination of different types of material from different disciplines to see how they relate. And in China, they do relate mm. as well. And, mm. and they do in the fertile system as well. I was just going to say China, yes, has been, of course, um, as, you know, it is the almost, I think India's beaten them now in population size, but China's always been mm-hmm. the, 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 one of the most densely populated areas on, on the planet. Mm. No doubt about that. Mm-hmm. It is incredibly fertile. Mm-hmm. It's huge rivers, the Yangtze, the Yellow, and the other big rivers. Um, and of course, many populations in Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands, including Polynesians, their ancestral DNA mm. um, has origins in the area that we now call China. It wasn't Chinese then, but um, mm-hmm. I mean, the Chinese mm-hmm. conquered China 2000 years ago and built up the mm-hmm. state that exists there now. But um, before that yeah. time, the, the enormous impact and, and very major migrations took place. Mm, yeah yeah this is so 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 fascinating to think about it from those perspectives so before again before languages let's let's uh let's let's go over to the other side of the globe real quick so again you you mentioned it so if you want to expand upon a little bit is you you talk about agriculture developing relatively independently you can describe what that means um in the central andes Mm -hmm. in south america in the northwest in mesoamerica in the east woodlands in the u.s what does this relatively independently yeah, relatively. mean? Well, of course, yeah, in, yeah. In, let, let's take the case of maize. The first people to cultivate yeah, please. and domesticate maize were probably living in the in the Balsas River basin in north in sort of western Mexico, and mm. they might have. I mean, some uh, 
botanists and geneticists think that maize might have first been domesticated because it's like sugar cane. It has sugar in its stalk, uh, nothing to do with the cob. And the, 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 sugar, the, the sugary liquid from the stalk was used for fermenting um, uh, alcoholic beverages. Um, I think, uh, what is it, chicha is a kind of beer. That's made from the cob, I gather. But, you know, that's the general idea that um, people, and in China too, uh, ancient people were very interested in alcoholic beverages and in the fertile crescent. I mean, wine you know, <laughs> has a history of what is it? I think 6,500 BC in Iran. This is one of the one of the main reasons for domestication, not just to eat the food, but to make wonderful drinks out of it. And don't forget also, as um, one of my colleagues, Ian Gilligan, is always pointing out, domestication was also incredibly important for textiles, uh, fibres like flax and other crops that produce fibres that you can make clothing from. Uh, and th- th- that's another incredibly important reason for domesticating. But um, uh, sorry, we were talking about maize yeah, and relative. Well, maize was first cultivated and domesticated in Mexico, but very quickly, by about 7,000 years ago, people took it to um, Panama and, and right down into Peru. And maize is found in, in archaeological sites in Peru, dating to, I think, about five or 6,000 years ago. I've forgotten the exact date. And mm-hmm. also moving into the, into the western part of the Amazon lowlands as well. Mm-hmm. And clearly the maize was taken down there initially, maybe by hunter-gatherers, or, I don't know, and people in different places continued to domesticate it. Eventually, uh, the, 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 the interest in maize was, became focused on the cob rather than the stalk. And, of mm-hmm. course, once the cob started to develop and become bigger, it became more and more productive. I mean, the ancient civilizations of the Americas were as we know, the Incas, the Aztecs, and so forth, they depended on maize, very uh, large cobbed maize, rather like modern sweet corn, that developed over time. But these people were in contact. I have no doubt about this. Ancient people, uh, even, in, even, in the, even, even before agriculture, people had boats. They got to Australia 50,000, 55,000 years ago. Well, they, they must have crossed sea passages that were 80 or 90 kilometers wide. They had, we don't know what kind of boats they had, we never will, but probably rafts or something like that, mm-hmm. or boats made out of tree bark, something, some, some ways of getting around. People got around and um, for thousands, tens of thousands of years. So it's very difficult to say that something was invented in absolute isolation. I never quite believe that. Um, of course, the big issue here is contact between the Americas and Asia and Europe in ancient times. Um, I don't think there was very much major contact because you know, European and Asian language families, except in the Arctic zone, don't occur in the Americas. And the DNA mm-hmm. doesn't suggest massive influxes of mm. people. Um, but some contact uh, is always possible. And in the case of maize, it's become recently very visible that the maize was moved thousands of kilometers by humans down into Peru very early on in its domestication history, long before uh, major civilizations developed in Peru or Mexico. This was done you know, very early on by, I suppose, developing hunter-gatherers who were emerging into agriculture. 
Um, so that's where the, the idea of relative partly comes from. And in Africa, too, we know that before the development of millet agriculture in uh, what is now the Sahel zone of, uh, of sort of Africa between the Sahara and the, um, and, and the rainforest and savanna zones, um, but before that a development of millet agriculture, there were already arrivals of sheep and goats mm. from the Middle East. They, they, people had brought them, pastoral peoples had brought them um, through across the Red Sea and through into northeastern Africa before mm. um, the millet farming or at about the time the millet farming was developing. And I think there were, there were connections here, yes. People were mm-hmm. and spreading mm. ideas. And mm. uh, I have little doubt about that. Well, it's just very interesting because we still see all throughout the Americas how, I mean, you know, corn is super much a staple of all of, all of our, 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 of our food. I mean, if you, you know, go to anywhere in, in, in Latin America, you're going to have some kind of corn of some sort. You're going to have tortillas in in Mexico and Central America. And you're going to, is this interesting? You have it here in the U S and even in South America. The other big crop is, is is manioc cassava from the Amazon region. That, that's, Mm -hmm. that's an enormous, and the sweet potato. If you Uh go around in Uh Asia, you know, in tropical mm-hmm. Asia, in, especially in drier climates, you find those two crops are grown everywhere. Yeah. I mean, because mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're e- easier to grow than rice. And, and in dry climates, they're, they're very hardy. Um, and, and maize. Yeah, ma- maize, manioc, cassa- uh, manioc and um, sweet potato, three American mm. origin crops, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are becoming really yeah. important across the, uh, the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 mm-hmm. it's a, such an interesting story there. So let's talk about language. So obviously there's a big importance of, of, of languages, different languages evolving. Let me ask just generally about, uh, I want to ask you about Anatolia, but mm. so this will kind of connect here, but um, you know, how instructive were the, the, the Mongols and then you have the Ottomans after, and then you have, you know, this is a little bit more, more recent, but yeah. this spread of language and where, how trade and religion play a part. Yeah. What was this yeah. importance yeah. here? This with I don't now. I, I, I do go into this quite a lot in the 5 million year odyssey. Yes. I don't think these conquest empires ever spread any language. Alexander the great um, <laughs> conquered all over the place, all the way to the Indus river. But of course, a few hundred years after his death, and the kingdoms that followed him, uh, everything was soaked up into the Asian land, linguistic landscape. Greek disappeared. It was the, the, the script was used for a while. Um, mm-hmm. the Greeks now, I mean, Greek is spoken in Greece, basically in Cyprus, basically, and of course in places, migrant communities in the USA and Australia. Um, and the Mongols, well, yes, huge empire, but Mongol has only ever really been, or the Mongolian languages, because there are more than one of them only ever spoken, as far as I know, in the Mongolian region. Um, uh, and, and the same, um, the Romans were more successful because the Romans, like the ancient Chinese, they had this habit, when they conquered a province, um, they would uh, allow the, uh, the members of the army, who would have been from different parts of the empire, but all, all would have had to speak Latin to, you know, to mm-hmm. manage their lives in the, in, in, in the army. Um, they were given land to settle. And so, of course, Latin spread. As we know, Latin today is very widely spoken. I think of it as Latin, even though we now call it French and Italian and Spanish. Right, right. But it is still Latin. It is, it's just, it's just living it is, Latin. Yeah, it's all, yeah, it's a Latin base. Yeah. Yeah. They were successful. But most of the conquerors, and if you look, well, Alfred Crosby in his book, Ecological Imperialism, wrote very effectively about this many years ago. 
Um, mm. Countries like North America, Australia, and New Zealand, the indigenous populations, unfortunately for them, I guess, were not very numerous in most areas. And of course, the Europeans poured in in their tens of thousands in ship after ship after ship and took the land. And as a result, <clears throat> the English language and um, Spanish in many parts of the Americas um, spread, replacing indigenous languages. But of course, in the areas of Asia where there were civilizations and Africa and Europe, very dense populations, this didn't happen. So if you go to Indonesia, which was uh, well, one time was a Dutch colony, you will not hear anyone speaking Dutch. And you don't hear mm -hmm. people speaking Spanish in the Philippines. They do speak English a great deal. Uh, that's partly because of the American um, mm -hmm. control of the Philippines in the early 20th century. But um, but uh, and then you don't hear French spoken, of course, in the former Indochina. But you do hear a lot of English in Australia and the USA. And the reason why is very obvious: is because uh, because people, mostly of people with a farming way of life, settled in very large numbers and brought the language and established it. Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great didn't. They didn't have enough followers to do that. They, 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 yeah. Alexander didn't have enough Greeks, and many of the Greeks mm. went home. They got fed up with it after they walked mm -hmm. all the way to mm -hmm. Pakistan um, and they wanted to go home. <laughs> so mm -hmm. so um, mm -hmm. it just disappeared. And, mm -hmm. um, and it disappeared also in Egypt. Of course, the Greeks, mm -hmm. the Ptolemies, controlled Egypt and the Romans conquered them and, and Greek eventually disappeared. If Greek did survive in, in Turkey as in the Byzantine Empire until the, yeah, yeah. Until the Turkish, uh, the, the, the Ottoman conquest. But, and then... Right but only in, in, in that area. So, I mean, the, the, the moral of this story is that the, the kind of empires that we've seen in recent history that, that have involved colonial conquest and the maintenance of sort of um, you know, cities uh, like Jakarta, for instance, in, in Indonesia, you know, port yeah. trading cities where a foreign elite managed a very large, widespread indigenous population those, mm -hmm. th those sort of conquests had no impact on language. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The ones that did, unfortunately for the indigenous people, were the ones where the land was taken by settlers and, uh, and permanent populations, vast numbers yeah. of them were, were established. Yeah. And I think the same applies to prehistory. That's why farming yeah. is so important. Yeah. It, 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 it is a, a never-ending source of population growth. You know, eight billion people mm. in the world today. Well, what do we live on? The products of domestication. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, yeah it's very true. Without that, we wouldn't be here. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so tell us about this Anatolian hypothesis. I found this deeply fascinating. So many people will think about the Greeks and the Greek language, and it was very dominant for a while. Even if you start all the way, what is it, late bronze with classical or ancient mm. Greece, and the mm. what is it, the. Uh, eighth century BC, but if you go yeah. pre-Greek, uh, yeah. you know you usually get to the the Hittites, right? Well, Which is kind of... in Greece, you get to the Mycenaeans, of course, who were Greek. Um, uh -huh. um, yes, yes, yeah. But the, the Hittite, well, the Hittites, the, their language, were, which became that died out in two thousand yeah. years ago. Um, the Anatolian languages, I, I, I'm sure they also included the ancient Trojans. They, they probably they must have uh -huh. spoken an Anatolian language. They were all yeah. over. The region, the, well, the sort of central and western parts of the region that we now call Turkey, there were different languages right. in the Far East, um, and they they disappeared. And this brings up a very important point that's worried me for many years. Now, I'm not a linguist, 
But I do read a lot of linguistic papers, and I can see what linguists are doing. Linguists want to work out. You have a, a whole group of related languages, let's say Indo-European. It's been known for 200 years that English and French and German and, and, uh, and, um, and Hindi and Persian and Armenian and Greek and many others, of course, Russian, the Slavic languages, they're all related. They've got words in common. Um, this was worked out in the middle of the 18th century. There's nothing new about it. They're related. So linguists want to know, and archaeologists too, where did they spread from? Now, <clears throat> linguists can only work um, basically with the data that has survived. Now, in the case of Indo-European, of course, the the data include living languages, as they're spoken now, mostly in the form of very widespread standardized state languages, which is not the prehistoric situation. Nowadays, you know, the English language is unified. Um, in AD 500, when the Anglo-Saxons were settling England, it was not. It, there must have been quite different dialects brought in from the continent. But, but even so, where we, we know that all of these languages are related. They, they must have a, an origin, and it is thought to be a common origin. There's no other way of explaining it, because unrelated languages can't converge into a language family. Language families can really only originate and spread. That's the, uh, there's no other explanation that makes any sense. So where do they spread from? Well, in the case of Indo-European, what has survived? Um, there are two subgroups. The subgroup is a name for a closely related group of languages, you know, that share an immediate common origin. Two subgroups. One of them is the Anatolian languages. That includes Hittite. Um, the other one is a, a group now spoken in Western China in, in Xinjiang called Tokharian. The Xinjiang now, of course, is, is, is Turkic-speaking region. But um, the Tokharian uh, was an Indo-European subgroup and, and documents found in desert conditions dating to about a thousand years ago, record uh, these Tocharian languages. Anatolian was totally extinct. Uh, the, I, think, I think it's mentioned in the Bible somewhere, and, uh, and, and sort of Egyptian records talk about um, having a go at the Hittite kings and fighting yeah. battles and so yeah, forth. Yeah. But mm -hmm. in the case of the Hittites, of course, they had writing. And in their mm -hmm. capital, Atusas, or Koi in central Turkey, these tablets with cuneiform writing have been found mm -hmm. and it can be deciphered. Um, and it is, turns out that it is this Anatolian Indo-European language. What is more, in central Turkey, there is another site called um, Kultepe or uh, Kanesh, which even earlier, around about 2000 BC, 1900 BC, had a, an Assyrian trading station from um, southern Iraq the Assyrians were in central Turkey trading, and they also used clay tablets with cuneiform writing. And many of those tablets have been found. Of course, they're in the Assyrian language, which is a Semitic language, not in the European. Right. But they do mention the names of people, which linguists think in many cases are of Anatolian-speaking people, Anatolian names. So we mm -hmm. know about the Hittites through their writing, and we know mm -hmm. about the Tokharians through their writing. But if we didn't have writing, and we didn't have it until the early 20th century for either of these groups, we would know nothing. Um, and I'm just thinking here also of the Celtic languages. The Celtic language is still spoken uh, mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in a very small way, of course, in Scotland, Ireland, Wales, um, formerly in Cornwall and, uh, 
and still, I think, in Brittany, they were once spoken all over Europe, according to place name evidence, and even into Turkey. They've disappeared. Mm. The Germanic and Slavic-speaking people and the Romans and their Latin have replaced them everywhere. Um, we yeah. can read about this, you know, in Julius Caesar, uh, <laughs> who conquered the Celts of Gaul. Um, now, this means, so this could be getting quite complicated, but it means that no, 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 when, when linguists are um, analysing a language family, they've only got the data that survive in, that they can actually see or read, either spoken yeah. or, or, written or, or in recorded information. But many language families have huge segments that have obviously disappeared completely. Now, this has happened with North American, Native American mm-hmm. languages, with the arrival of European colonists, of course. Vast parts of the USA really have no trace of their original languages. This includes the so-called Mississippian region around St. Louis, that big site mm-hmm. in Cahokia. Um, mm-hmm. No one really knows what was spoken there. There's no uh, indigenous language spoken on the spot now. And many areas of that part of the USA, which is very densely settled, of course, um, uh, have no real good linguistic places of the former situation. So, in other words, many of these language families have uh, their roots have disappeared. They've disappeared because within the language families, uh, some of the groups have expanded and cannibalized the, the, their relatives, if you like. You know, they've spread. And this has happened with Anatolian, of course. The Greeks conquered Anatolia um, and Greeks spread in uh, uh, during Greek times and then, of course, joined the Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire, especially. And then Turkish again came in and spread over the top of all of that. So, um, these subgroups have disappeared. And I know that the same thing has happened with many, many um, subgroups of uh, families of languages in Southeast Asia. Uh, the Vietnamese and Khmer are related in the Austroasiatic language family. But vast areas of that language family have been overlain and completely replaced by the spreads of, first of all, Chinese and, and Sino-Tibetan languages, but also especially the Thai languages, which come from southern China. In other words, languages replace each other. Migration Mm -hmm. never stops. People are always moving and um, things are being replaced. Now, if Mm -hmm. we didn't, back in the case of Indo-European, if if the Hittites (laughs) had never invented or, 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 or borrowed their writing from Mesopotamia, which is what they did in reality, we would never really know anything about them. We'd have no idea. Yeah. No, we, we, yeah. we, we, um, and, of course, there is a strong view nowadays that uh, Indo-European languages spread from the, the steppes north of the Black Sea in the um, mm. rather war-torn region of Ukraine and Western Russia. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to accept, and there's good DNA evidence, that there, was, there were population spreads from here into northern Europe, north of the Alps, especially Scandinavia and England. Britain um, mm. and Northern Europe. But I don't think all of the Indo-European languages came from the steppes north of the Black Sea, certainly not uh, not the Anatolian languages. And the ancient mm. DNA also um, indicates that uh, you know, spreads from the steppes are important in Northern Europe, but not in the Southern. The Mycenaeans and um, the uh, Minoans, whoever they were, the people of Crete, but also people in Anatolia, the Hittites, they did not. They did not have a steppe origin. Some linguists now think that maybe the Indo-European family developed first of all in what is now Armenia, 
and then spread north to the steppes. I'm not sure. My view still is that with the Neolithic period in Europe, um, between mostly between 4,000 and 6,500 BC, there was a massive population replacement uh, known from DNA and archaeology. And that is when the first Indo-European languages spread. But of course, many of them have been replaced. The ones that were there 5,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago are not there anymore. They don't have descendants because the Romans and the Slavic-speaking people in the Balkans and Eastern Europe and Germanic speakers, they've all spread, as we can see, with Celtic and Anatolian and Tokharian, and they've replaced what was there before. And that makes life very difficult. I mean, you can only reconstruct what is likely to have happened by giving equal consideration to language, genetics, and archaeology. Um, it's very difficult to just take one of those disciplines and say that you know this is the one that gives the answer, and everything else is uh, is to be ignored. I, I I don't I can't see that. When I take all three into consideration, then to me it is the um, it is the Anatolian region, Tur what we call it Turkey, Turkey now. Yeah. Uh, that is the region yeah. where these Indo-European languages originated um, six and a half thousand years, or 6,500 BC, actually, in, uh, in terms of migration. But many of the earliest traces of their movements are no longer clearly surviving linguistically. It's very mm -hmm. difficult to argue from data that don't exist. I know it is extremely difficult to argue from something that no longer survives, but sometimes it is very obvious that things don't survive. And then you have to think about the possibilities of what is most likely to have been the case, even though you will never know for certain. We can never prove anything. We can't prove mm -hmm. that Indo-Europeans came from anywhere at any time. Um, mm -hmm. It is all assumption. It's interesting assumption. Um, uh, and that's as far as we can ever go. But we can, well, all we can go for is the most likely hypothesis. And uh, for me, still, Indo-European um, started life as a, as a Neolithic spread amongst early farmers coming out of the Fertile Crescent. Um, mm. and, and, of course, since then, vast developments have swamped it and overlain it. Yeah. Which is true. Yeah, well, the, well, the, the Anatolian hypothesis is, is very, very convincing. I mean, again... When you start thinking about these regions, you know, we have, you know, from history in various forms, uh, and there's a lot of overlap here, but we have obviously the Assyrian Empire, we have the Scythian Empire, we have yeah, places yeah. from people, people groups from the yeah. Caucasus region. Yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, you have, you know, Sumerian and yeah. Akkadian, and, and you have all of these different yeah. languages, Semitic and non-Semitic. Mm. And it's, it's very uh, instructive to see... A lot of these, such as we were discussing, the Hittites in the Anatolia region have now gone, you know, extinct. But there are other groups as well, you know, that have also from this region, the steppe, the Caucasus, the, yeah, you know, yeah, kind of yeah, outside yeah. of Persia in Anatolia that have also uh, not, at least not known a lot of evidence or have been destroyed or whatever. And so it's interesting to see something that we might not know or very, very small yeah. fragments of, but yeah. could have had a tremendous impact yeah. on yeah. the languages yeah. we yeah. Or currently speak now in those yeah. regions. Well, I think this, of course, the, 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 the steps north of the Black Sea, Ukraine, Western, the Pontic steps, as they're called. Mm -hmm. I think certainly there, the evidence for Bronze Age, early, late Neolithic, early Bronze Age migrations across Northern Europe is extremely strong, and we can't ignore that. 
It happened, yeah. of course, after the Roman Empire as well, with all of the Goths and Vandals and, and Huns. Yeah. But don't forget, they never established any languages. In, in, I mean, they conquered all over the place, but their languages never, ne- never got adopted. Uh, well, it, it, I suppose in the case of Germanic languages with the Anglo-Saxons, they were highly successful in, in England. But, but most mm-hmm. of them were, but those languages were not picked up because there were too many indigenous people. In the case of Pontic steppes migrations, well, yes, I can see it is possible that some of the northern subgroups of Indo-European, um, Baltic, Slavic languages might have spread from that region. I'm not convinced, actually, that they um, that they 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 repl- I'm sure they migrated, but whether they replaced any language, like the case of Alexander mm. the Great, um, mm. or, or, or they, you know, did, did they did they replace the languages? Uh, and because the, the Pontic Steppe DNA is not found in large quantities around the Mediterranean, or in even in most of India, except amongst the higher castes that may have had a Central Asian mm. origin. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just don't think that it explains the whole picture. Uh, the, the Pontic step spread is a secondary one, I think. It's important, and it certainly um, sure. had an impact on Northern Europe. But I think it followed the initial spread that I think was much older and did start from Anatolia and go through mm. Europe mm. and in, into other parts of the Middle East. And, of mm. course, it, yeah. eventually into South Asia as well, into India and Pakistan, because mm-hmm. language is there. Mm-hmm. Also, European yeah. in the north. Certainly, yeah, yeah. It's deeply, deeply fascinating. So, my my uh, my final question here is: uh, there are so many turning points in our five million year history. We have uh, the separation from homonyms, from chimps and bonobos, migration yeah. out of Africa, yeah. Yeah. the genus Homo, Homo sapiens, food production, migrations, all these things. I guess the the big question I have is: what would you say if you had to to reduce it down to one or two major factors that are the most significant for humans, who we are, how we got to where we are today. Yeah. What would you say about, about our 5 million year yeah. odyssey in that way? Well, of course, there is the biological. Being bipedal, mm. having, uh, having a big brain, yeah. having hands that can, can play violins and things like that. Um, <laughs> uh, the cultural, um, yeah, well, I think, um, of course, there is, yes, having, having tools and knowing how to use them. But there is another factor. Well, there are two other factors. Because one of them is migration. Migration, I think, is extremely important. For many years, archaeologists years ago, when I was a student, used to say, "Oh, nobody ever migrated. Everything evolved, you know, where it's found." I, I've never found that argument very impressive. But the other one, of course, is population growth. Um, migration and population growth go hand in hand. I mean, starving people are not going to migrate very far. Um, uh, and, uh, and you know, impoverished and, uh, and disease-ridden people are not going to be successful migrants. Successful migrants were populations who had a strong food supply that they could carry with them. Yes, that's very important too, of course, being able mm. to carry these domesticated plants and animals and plant them in completely different environments. Um, that was a major part of, part of it. But population growth and migration, they're, they're, they're two sides of the same coin, in, in my view. Um, I think they were essential, as well as the biological side, and of course the linguistic. I mean, language. The, yeah. the, there are two sides. There's the the physical side to linguistics. We can speak. We have hyoid bones and throats, and you know we have we have speech apparatus that other primates don't have. Other animals. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Our languages are also major cultural creations. They're full of words that you know, define the way people live and think. 
And uh, so <clears throat> languages, yes, the biology, um, and, the, and the culturally driven population growth and migration, um, yeah, I think those, those are the answers. They're very general mm. things, but... Um, no, 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 but yeah, I, think, why, I think those are the... why we're here. Yeah, yeah, exactly, absolutely. Well, the book is called The Five Million Year Odyssey, The Human Journey from Ape to Agriculture. Uh, this is out through the wonderful Princeton University Press, and it's absolutely fantastic. Peter, what can I say? This was this was such a delight. I, I am so so uh, thrilled that we got to talk for for so long and really give the 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 history of humans and hu- history of us. So I, I I can't say enough thanks. So 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 really really appreciate you Thank coming you on and giving us all your wisdom. Inviting me. I hope I've explained it clearly. I, I tend to get. Of course, I'm not using notes or anything or giving a lecture. I'm just making it up as I go along. But um, I, I hope it's come <laughs> through reasonably coherently. Um, and it, yes, it's an yes. exciting topic. Yes, it, uh, it's kept yes. for all of my career. Yes. Keep going for some more, yes. I think. Yes, I am just revising another book at the moment about ancient migration and trying to sort of think oh, nice. way through it. Um, yes, yeah. which will come out in a yeah. few years, no doubt. But, yeah. Um, well, well, big, big, big thanks. I greatly appreciate yeah. it. Thank you very much for inviting me. And um, okay. Absolutely. Absolutely.